Welcome into another edition of the Restore Liberty Podcast with George and Ray. Today, we're going to look at the current state of the education system with a special guest, Dr. Matt Waller, a high school and college professor of political science and history. And you got to stay tuned for segment three. Of course, we do three segments. We'll have a little bit more in depth with Dr. Waller in segment two, but segment three has maybe the Looney Tune of Looney Tunes. And, uh, and actually, in a special announcement of an event that's coming up as well that we will get to. That's so right. We sort of want to tease today. it, but we'll get there. Yeah, absolutely. Fire away. So, welcome. Glad you're here listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening from. And I'd just like to remind you that the election was stolen. We've got to cover that. I tried to find uh, current events going on in Arizona with the recount, and all you can find is the propaganda saying how it's it's a horrible audit, it's not real, and all that stuff. But we got to get to those because well, it's crazy. If it is a, a unreal or a fraudulent audit, why did they hire a hundred lawyers to oppose it? it? it down, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, and welcome to the show, Matt. We're glad to have you here. We've been looking to get some perspective on uh, the younger generation, and certainly you uh, interact with them a lot more than we do. Uh, I haven't been in a classroom in years, so thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on. And uh, the first thing I want to do is congratulate Moeller High School down the road for um, the winning the state championship in volleyball and defeating uh, the Elder Panthers in, I think, a five-set match. So yeah. good job to the Mighty Mo and uh, great job. Proud of the kids at Elder for the job they did this year. Yeah, they came in runner-up. I saw that, and uh, I'm wearing my purple today just to show my side of the thing. Um, actually, I had two nephews that were on the state championship teams a couple of years ago. So anyway, it's, it's always good when it's an all GCL final. There you go. Right. Anyway, so uh, Matt is teaching at high school. He's been there at Elder for what, three or four years. And before that, St. Henry High School over in Kentucky. Just completed my third year at Elder was at St. Henry for 18 years. And you also teach at Miami University. Uh, now, and I think my ninth or 10th year teaching Miami uh, part time in the political science department as a visiting professor. Excellent. Glad to have you here. The topic for today is to talk about the education system and what's happening in America as far as education goes. And, and as I said, I've been on the outside looking in for quite a while. So let's let's talk about things a little bit from what you can see from looking at the outside. And, and to me, the biggest thing that comes up all the time is how much money we're spending. So I did some research, and again, I'll publish where I found these facts online. Um, it's an, actually an ed.gov website. So I, I'm using their data when I tell you that the United States spends on average $14,000 per elementary school student and $34.5,000 per secondary student. We are second in the world as far as how much is spent. The only country that spends more money is Luxembourg, which has like four times the per capita GDP than the United States has. So they're, they're the outlier when you look at the data. So we're spending tons and tons of money, yet the United States still ranks 37th in the world in math, 18th in science, and 13th in reading. So we're spending a ton of money, and the results are not changing. Uh, we've actually been in these positions for quite a while. So it's it's clear that you know the money's going somewhere not to the students. And, and that's the other thing you're hearing a lot now, especially with regard to COVID, that the teachers' unions were opposing going back to school in class. And clearly... It's got to be difficult to learn via Zoom. How long did you guys spend doing Zoom last year? So last year, we did not miss a single day due to COVID. Uh, we started uh, the beginning of August, I think uh, around the 10th or 12th of August. 
Um, I personally missed some time because I I had COVID in the spring and then again in the fall. I was lucky enough to get it twice. So wow. I, hopefully, I have two entries into the sweepstakes. I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, that that's one point of pride for Elder is that we did not miss a single day uh, due to COVID. We took a lot of precautions, um, and the students. Uh, it, this is odd for this to say, but the students loved being back. Uh, and when you told them, hey, I need you to do this because there's this will increase the odds that we stay in school, they did it. Right. And so you didn't miss a day. How how widespread was the disease among the high school population? And I, I can't give you a percentage, but we did have a number of students that were out and, and they did. Uh, they would they would go out and do it from home and, and, and do it remotely. Uh, my position on this all along has been that you cannot replace butts in the seats. It makes a huge difference when it comes to education. I struggled as a teacher uh, last uh, two years ago when we did the last uh, quarter and a half remotely right. uh, when, when things first hit in 2020. Um, and I know that the students struggled, and it, it became almost like a, a checklist of things to do of, of busy work or something like right. that because it's it's really difficult to – to gauge and assess students in that manner. Well, you can't get any idea for how they're really thinking. Are they capturing the knowledge or not? Even with masks on in a classroom, you've got to be losing some of the visual cues on who's listening, who's not listening, who's participating. It's funny you say that because this year what I experienced is sometimes a student would respond and I'd look around, I'd have no idea who responded because they have a mask. I don't right. see their mouth moving. And I'm like, all right, say that again. Who said that? And it, and it became really strange, and towards the end of the year at some sporting events when we were outside and could go maskless, students would come up and say hello to me, and I wouldn't recognize them. I don't recognize <laughs> wow. them without a mask. You know, it's... Because all you see are eyebrows and eyes. And, and, that's and what purple. Gonna, yeah, I'm in your right. third period class. You are? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you vlogging? Yeah. So th- that was the first thing was, you know, from the outside looking in, we're spending a ton of money. And, and you know, I spend more on... Coleraine Township property taxes than I do on my mortgage right now. So it's crazy. The second thing is, um, as we spoke with Dan Reginald a couple of weeks ago, the increasing emphasis on equity. And, and you know, there's a, a policy that's come out, and I'm going to read it because it's, it's just crazy. So this is Piedmont United School District of Piedmont, California. They passed a policy in September stating that the district's commitment to, and I quote, equitable outcomes for students who identify as black, indigenous, and people of color through new race policies. These policies use tax dollars to teach children as young as kindergarten that their nature, their nation is evil. And due to our, quote, nation's continuing history of systemic racism, anti-blackness, white supremacy, white privilege, and oppression on race. And they're using this to implement what they call anti-racist education in kindergarten now correct me if i'm wrong when i've seen kindergarten kids they don't care who they're playing with i mean what color i i know my grandson he will walk up to anybody and say do you want to do you want to play it's like we're teaching them that you can't do that anymore it just seems totally counterintuitive well george even you in kindergarten probably weren't a racist yet Probably not. Yeah. I do okay. remember standing in a corner a couple of times. But. <laughs> and so suddenly now your school grade needs to be coerced based on what color you are. And, and so the one that is a personal pet peeve is mathematics. California, mathematics. In the name of equity, California will discourage students who are gifted at math. 
you can't take an advanced math class until 11th and 12th grade. So that that really struck me as is so odd. I, I went to high school at St. X, and our freshman year we had a kid that took APBC Calc. Wow. They had to make up courses the next three years for the student. And I'm thankful that they did because I don't know what happened to that student, but I believe that they're probably somewhere solving some some large problems. Absolutely. That. And like I said before, that's why I love Montessori, the idea that you just let the kid move at their own pace. Now they're with other children, but you know you don't try and force everyone to the least common denominator, which seems to be what it is. I hate to use a math term. Sorry about that. <laughs> but then you've got in Virginia – which is unfortunately where my daughter and two granddaughters live, they currently have planned an initiative that will eliminate all math acceleration prior to 11th and 12th grades, the same as what they're doing in California. According to the the source all these people are quoting, which is equitablemath.org. Now, equitable math right there is an oxymoron. Math is either true or false. There is no middle ground on math. White supremacy culture shows up in math classrooms when – there is a greater focus on getting the right answer than understanding concepts and reasoning. <laughs> you know, I want my airplane pilot to understand math. I, I don't know. It's just me. And, and the bridge maker. And, and Yeah, some of those. There's engineer guys like you. I think you got to know that stuff. I don't know. It's, it's, it's just appalling to me that suddenly now the right answer is not the right answer. I, I'm used to the, the mantra that you got to show your work, which always pissed me off because I'd do it in my head and write the answer down and they'd take points off. I'm like, well, is it right? Yeah, it's right. But See, I'd look up the odd numbers in the back of the book. That's how I got through it. <laughs> there you go, right. So, I mean, it, it seems crazy now that we're teaching our kids from kindergarten that there is no right or wrong answer. There is no right or wrong gender. There is no... American dream. I mean, we're going to get to this in the next segment about, you know, how are we teaching American history to these kids? Because clearly they don't understand concepts like freedom, liberty, capitalism, free market. I mean, those seem to be totally missing. And we'll get to that in the second half. But, you know, from the outside looking in, we're spending a ton of money. The results are not stellar compared to the money we're spending. And we're seeing signs now that the curriculum is turning further and further away from the old school reading, writing, and arithmetic. So, I mean, Matt, does that tick any boxes that you've been yeah. playing with? So part of the problem with a lot of this stuff is it's really not age appropriate. To, to discuss with a kindergarten student that um, there are multiple ways of looking at issues, that's just not cog- – they're not cognitively able to do that. Now, if, if they're in uh, maybe a, an advanced student in high school or in graduate school, then that's fine. That's why, by the way, in graduate school, most of my tests – uh, were open book because oh, yeah. they, they didn't care about the facts. They cared about how you analyze the facts and how you see them from different points of view. We, I think we're doing a disservice by putting that model on kindergarten, first, second, and third graders when they've just begun to develop. Well, and that's the whole point there is in the early years, all I remember is massive memorization. You know, you had the, the times table pages that you just had to be able to do. You had the addition that's how you learned everything was through rote. There was there was only this is the answer. There was never this squishy ground. Even when we took, you know, introductory civics in fourth grade, here's the answers. I mean, and that's how you learn. And, and like you say, by the time you get to college, all of our tests were open book in engineering because they don't expect any engineer to, to remember a theory or a formula and just go from memory because, again, you're building bridges and, and jet engines <laughs> but, and but stuff. But there's no wrong answer. Right. So th- this is kind of crazy. So it-, it seems to be getting further and further away from, you know, teaching by rote is bad, 
even though that's the only way a younger mind can can grasp things. If you tell them there's no right answer or, you know, group by tens and all this other crazy common core stuff, I, I think it's just confusing the heck out uh, of them. You know, I owned a tutoring company for 13 years. We did in-home tutoring. And uh, with all the goofy curriculum that's been around for a long time, Singapore math was one thing, and it just didn't make any sense. Glad I missed that one. And so uh, the kids would get behind in math, right, in those third, fourth, fifth grade where you're supposed to be uh, getting it together, and multiplication tables, they weren't using the flashcards in, in school because that was demeaning. And uh, so they, they would be behind. The parents would hire one of our tutors to come in and fix the problem with flashcards. <laughs> right. Sometimes the old school is the best school. Uh, I said this before, I think. Uh, I went back once and looked at an eighth grade test back in the single room classroom days. I didn't know most of the stuff on there. It was amazing how sophisticated and complicated that test was for an eighth grader. It's just unbelievable. I don't think we've come forward with regard to education, but we'll get to more of that in a second second segment. Yes, indeed. A lot more to get to the current state of the education system with our guest, Dr. Matt Waller. Reminder, you can subscribe on Spotify, SoundCloud, iHeart, and many others. Just search for Restore Liberty, the name of the podcast, and sign up at info at RestoreLiberty.us. We'll continue with the Restore Liberty podcast with George and Ray after this timeout. Welcome into segment two of the Restore Liberty podcast with George and Ray. We continue with our special guest, Dr. Matt Wallet, on the current state of the education system. George? Yeah, Matt, glad to have you here again. Thank you so much. And part of what we're really hoping to hear is I'd like to understand your perspective, having been there for, you know, 20 years plus maybe, of, of how are the students changing? How is the classroom changing? So first of all, for, with students, what kind of changes have you seen over the years as far as the knowledge, the behavior, the attitudes? Um, well, I'll start first with, with kind of um, expectations. I, I, you went through some statistics that show that, you know, that education is kind of struggling. But I know that the expectations I have for my students are much more than my teachers had for me. Oh. Uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of surprising to see some of the kind of advanced stuff. Now, 
let, let's take that and silo that and say that, look, I teach advanced placement courses and they're seniors, um, you know, and they're on the way to, to colleges and, you know, they're scoring 30 plus on their ACT. So I have a little, I don't have a general audience, but right. uh, that's one thing I've, I've seen. The other thing I've seen has kind of been a, a decline that's come along with the one-to-one, the computer, um, the computer model. Uh, even at the university level at Miami, I think I might be the only one left in political science that hasn't banned computers from classrooms. Oh, they don't allow the computers yeah. in the rooms Weapons anymore. of mass distraction is what they are. Oh, I mean, wow. you know, kids are shopping on Amazon and looking on Facebook or whatever, TikTok. And, and, and as a result, I find that I'm repeating directions over and over and over and over again to the point where it's it should be something that – if if part of our job is to create people, I get I get it that are critical thinkers. We also need to create people that will uh, work in, in an employee type of employer relationship. And if you can't follow simple directions because you're not paying attention, that's a right. problem and a skill that we're missing out on. Absolutely. So you're saying that the you know what you see with children in the homes where they're always watching a television, it's got to be action, action, action all the time. That's happening in the classrooms as well. It, it is. And, and look, I don't care at lunch or at study hall if you want to go take your um, go take your laptop and go watch, I, I don't know, at Elder, it's usually football films or something. <laughs> right. Um, that's fine. That's your time. But not on my time. On my time, I want you doing my stuff. And that's uh, that's become a, a, a tougher hill to climb lately because wow. you, you have that competition um, with everything that's available on the Internet. Do you feel like it's harder to keep their attention when you're teaching? Um, yeah, I, I think it's become a, a little bit more difficult uh, because of of the advent of the computer. But when I'm in a classroom, it's almost like a whole different persona. Um, I do crazy stuff to get, get attention. Right. And um, if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss that. And, and I think that's part of the thing, part of the reason that I, that I enjoy my job so much is that there aren't a lot of restrictions placed on me. And, and you know, I can do whatever it takes to kind of get, get the point across. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's part of it, making it entertaining. Yeah, but, you know, I'd love to hear you comment. You you work uh, your day job at a private high school, and then you sometimes sit in at a one of these uh, liberal institutions up there in Oxford, Ohio, beautiful place. You know, how are the instructors, What uh, what's their approach at Elder, and how does that match up to what the, your colleagues that you may – interact with at Miami? I think my colleagues at Elder are much more diverse in, in terms of opinion. Um, it, it, at uh, Miami, there's going to be uh, more. I, I might be the only conservative left in political science. Um, so at Elder, it, it's more diversity of opinion. And I'm fine with it. I, I like that. I think right. that students should learn to see everything from every point of view and, and learn the skills to critically think things through. Um, you know, my own life politically, I've been – you know, as a as a young kid, I was an Alex P. Keaton Republican. Then when I went to college, I was a you know protest him, going to be a labor attorney and and much more radical and liberal. And then you know, as I got out in the workforce, I became more conservative again because it's based upon where you're standing. And I think there's a critical examination of 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 what you see uh, play out in the natural world. But the the main point of that story is that all along I was engaged. I always tell my AP government students my one goal, not for you to pass the AP test, for you to go out and become a voter. And I will drive you to the polls, even if you go to vote against me, 
because I know that we're a better nation, a better country, the more people that vote. And even when you walk into that uh, booth the first time and you're like, oh, my gosh, who are all these judges? Right. And, uh, who are these people I need to select from? Guess what? You'll be better prepared the next time around because you'll kind of feel that self-induced pressure uh, to do a better job because it's, it's you know, it very much is a responsibility of citizenship. But the key there is an informed voter. I mean, we have so many voters now, and I've worked polls for a while, that come in, they grab their little blue ballot, and they just it's, – it's a copy and paste exercise right. for them. They have no clue what's going on. So the other key thing I heard you say is you're basically teaching them critical thinking skills. Absolutely. So the, the key is learning how to detect BS versus truth, and I think that's something that's really, really missing in the kids today. I think we throw the label of truth around so casually that it's just really, it's really concerning. Yeah. And, and so part of, uh, you know, I think the duty of education is to, is to, one, teach you how to learn by learning how to teach. Because clearly, uh, one thing that I've read and experienced is you never understand the subject until you got to teach it to somebody else. Because it's weird how you'll, you'll even in engineering where you would think, you know, F equals MA is F equals MA. I mean, you know, the, the formulas are always the same. But it, when you try and teach it and someone asks a question that you've never thought of before, it's like, okay, I got to think of this a different way. Explain how it interacts with the way I, I had thought about it previously. So, I mean, that critical thinking skill is, is just absolutely imperative to learn. And I try to, as a teacher, try to model that too. Because my class is not the same from year to year. I'm not that teacher that pulls out the yellowed notes, right. uh, you know, or the the overhead projector sheets and says, "All right." And I crossed out, you know, Ford as president and wrote in, you know, Trump right. or Biden or something. Um, it it uh, I, sh I I model that by my behavior and how I'm. Look, I'm always a student. I have two master's degrees and a PhD, and I, I go to f try to find information every day and try to learn more information every day. And, and I think. I think that kind of that that uh, uh, model shows for the students, and they want to do that as well. That's excellent. I didn't even think of that. And as soon as you said, you know, pull out the same yellow, <laughs> I, four teachers flashed into my head. They did it every year. Yep. Um, let's talk about American history in particular. That's always been my curiosity is how has the teaching of American history changed over the years? Because the history hasn't changed. I mean, it's history. That's no, right. no, no, George. Come on. <laughs> well, okay, I'm just curious. You know, if I would have taken my, you know, 1976 American history textbook and compared it to today, what are the major differences? Is is it getting better? Is it tilting? I mean, what well, have you seen over the years? I think it depends on the textbook series that you select. I mean, there there are textbook series that are that are much more liberal, and there are those that are much more conservative. And part of this whole question, by the way, lies in the textbook question because if California does something, every textbook. Uh, a producer in the world is going to try to replicate their stuff because they're a big customer. Right. So in, in Ohio or Kentucky, that's part of the catalog we get to choose from. So for instance, in history, Eric Foner is a, is a historian that does um, uh, kind of a radical Marxist view on history. He has a textbook that's available. So my job as a teacher is to kind of balance that out. So what I did at, at St. Henry when I was there, where I taught the juniors U.S. history and the seniors um, uh, AP, uh, AP U.S. history and AP government, is I selected one that was a little bit more left-leaning for book for the juniors, and for the seniors, I selected one that was right-leaning and try to find the, the middle ground in between there. So that's a big part of it as well, is that you have to deal with 
of the textbook producers. But to answer your question directly on what's changed, it's what has changed is it's become more of a social history. So in, in terms of um, you know wars and years and, and and stuff like that, you don't teach like you don't teach the Tet Offensive as much as you teach uh, what was going on uh, in the United States at the time of the Tet Offensive, for instance, the impact it had on the politicalization of the war and things like that. Uh, So I I think it's become probably a a lot more richer of an explanation, but oftentimes that comes at the cost of of missing some things. So the the one thing that always seems to be clear, um, just in interactions with what's going on and what you, you see, is that we've lost the ability to teach anything that disagrees with the liberal mindset. In other words, capitalism is evil, socialism is the cure, and nothing could be further from the truth. So how do you get through the fact that you know everything in the outside world is taking a, a slant that is not only wrong but dangerous? How do you try and get back to the middle ground even, much less get back to you know the stuff that we were talking about that made America great? Well, you know, and I think that's that's where you get to in the advanced courses some of the teaching of the theories. Uh, and when you, so for instance, one of the one of the things we teach is is about how the government is run, and there's an elitist theory, a pluralist model, a hyper pluralist model. There's one of those I believe. There's two that I don't quite buy. Um, it doesn't matter to the student which one I believe. But what I like to do is critically examine them all and see see where their deficiencies are and point out instances of where they where they work and where they don't work and then you then you choose so do the students know which one you've chosen no see that's the I, that's the key difference i think in the more liberal schools they always know what the teacher thinks uh, the problem i have as a politician is that oftentimes a student can look up my politics google it and find right. out where i'm at so i tell them where i'm at um but you know what i I, I don't expect them to be where where I am politically right. because I haven't always been where I am politically, uh, and, and I, I in kind of when I give feedback to students, if somebody disagrees with me, I, I kind of give that like a little extra push because I think that takes some courage to do, especially and, in the classroom. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I have people push back all the time, and I love it. Wow. So it's teaching them critical thinking again, and and to some extent, personal responsibility. They have to be responsible for how they look at things, and, and you're giving them a structure for how to do that. Absolutely. Excellent. So the we've been talking a couple of weeks now about critical race theory, the 1619 Project, you know, this whole equity over equality. How is that influencing things in the last couple of years? It, it's – so we have um, – in Elder, we have – I don't teach U.S. history anymore. I do government and world history, but but we have teachers that talk about critical theory and talk about the. Um, uh, they don't teach it as an a priori universal truth. They said this say this is a theory out there, um, and it becomes helpful for me the senior year when I have the students for for advanced placement government uh, because we can talk about uh, applying that theory and, and what its goal is. So, for example, uh, the one thing that you see, and, and you mentioned this in the earlier segment about uh, the Piedmont Unified School District, right. they're talking about equitable outcomes. The basis of our, co- our country has always been equality of, of opportunity. Correct. Once we shift to equality of outcomes, uh, now we're looking at really neo-Marxism and Marxism and the idea that everybody's equal eventually in, in, uh, in terms of what, they, what, what success they have. You know, and coming from somebody, you know, I work like three and a half jobs, I don't want to earn the same as somebody that doesn't work at all. I mean, it's... Correct. It should be a race to the top, not the race to the bottom. Right. And if you want equal outcomes, well, 
you know, North Korea and, and China can help you with that. That's that's their philosophy, right? If right. you're not the politician or in the, the ruling class, you're nothing, and you get what everybody else gets. Or the old Soviet Union where, you know, right. 2% shopped at, fancy, at the Guam, the fancy, uh, uh, the fancy department store, and the other 98% uh, worked on farms. Interesting. Now and the Guam is a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Moscow. Is it really? Yes. The last time I went to Russia, it was, yeah. And that's the poster for what... What came from America being a place where you could pursue your dreams, that it was up to you how far you could go. And in this whole, it, it really seems to have taken off to the races uh, in, in the time since our friend took office this year that, you know, suddenly everyone should get the same. And we got to take from the guys that, you know, worked 80 hours a week to get what they got and give it to the guy that doesn't even want to get off the couch. Well, it's the destruction of the human spirit, and you know our founding fathers based a lot on Judeo-Christian beliefs, and uh, you know uh, we're free to to do our best, and uh, crushing the human spirit is a way to get around is, that uh, against the teachings of uh, the Bible, right? And the teachings of common sense. I mean, if if your outcome is determined by somebody else, why do I got to try? I mean, I'm going to get the same thing if I try harder or not. I think A race to the bottom, like I said, yeah. Absolutely. Well, hey, thanks for the discussion. We're going to uh, move on to some more uh, ridiculous topics and some other information in Section 3. Yes, indeed. Uh, a couple of disturbing sound bites. One that's really going to get you from uh, from our president and leader. The hidden truth of the COVID conspiracies and a special Restore Liberty announcement that you'll want to listen for in Segment 3. Again, thanks to our guest, Dr. Matt Wallert. We'll continue. It's the Restore Liberty Podcast with George and Ray. Welcome back into the third and final segment, but there's a lot to get to in this third and final segment with the Restore Liberty Podcast with George and Ray. And George, I'm just going to let you hit it off. Yes, as always, we're going to start with a Looney Tunes uh, segment. We got two this week. Uh, one of them's Looney, the other's just flat out crazy. So let's start with our uh, favorite loon, uh, AOC. If we want to reduce violent crime, if we want to reduce the number of people in our jails, the answer is to stop building more of them. The answer is to make sure that we actually build more hospitals, we pay organizers, we get people mental health care and overall health care, employment, etc. It's to support communities, not throw them away. Okay. Yeah, we're, well, we're, yeah, um, build, uh, et cetera. build some mental hospitals because that's what the jails essentially are. 
and uh, yeah, she saw. But I, I, the whole philosophy that the reason we have violent crime in New York City. She was standing in New York City next to Chuck Schumer, who apparently was just looked like he he had to leave the room when she started talking, but. She's she's making this case that the reason we have violent crime in New York City is because we've got too many jails. It's like, you know, the reason I have two kids is because I lived in a three-bedroom house. <laughs> I, it's just crazy. I, how do people take this person seriously? It's just unbelievable. And, and nobody double-checks her on this. I think she got a little pushback on Twitter from, you know, the right, obviously. But I don't think any of the news channels covered this other than – I found this sign about on Fox, so I mean it's it's out there. But this girl is a loon. I mean she's she needs to go back to bartending. So that's the crazy. That's the the Looney Tune of the week. The the next one um, we had a little bit of a debate on whether to play it or not. But the, the fact is this this individual is the president of the United States. Yet he says things like this. I'm especially honored to share the stage with Brittany and Jordan and Nathan and. Margaret Catherine, I, uh, I love those barrettes in her hair, man. I tell you what, look at her. She looks like she's 19 years old sitting there with her, like a little lady in a race car. Wow. <laughs> so the president of the United States is ogling a girl. Uh, I could not find her age. Um, the, the dominant assumption is she was a grade school kid. I think she's nine. Wow. It looked like she was 19, according to him. So there you go. And he's talking about how he likes her hair, how he likes how she is crossing her legs, and that she looks of legal age. Matt, just a quick question. How long would you last at Elder if you said that? Um, About three seconds, I would think. <laughs> Only because it took him that long to listen to it. Yeah, that's right. Unbelievable. So this guy is uh, – we, we made the point on one of his previous Looney Tunes that when he is off script, he either says – whatever pops into his head which is what he did here or he says what he's been told like you know i'm not allowed to take questions they don't want me to talk to you so he he clearly this is what's going through his head and it just comes straight out of his mouth without a filter and it's scary folks uh you know at, at the same time we're talking about multiple genders and having men and go to women's rooms and participate in women's sports and we've got a president who's ogling a child saying she looks like she's 19 um if that doesn't scare you, you're, you're listening to the wrong podcast at a minimum. And, breathtaking, just breathtaking. Uh, I found that one quite disturbing. Um, the other news that's happened since uh, we took a, a week break there. Sorry about that, but we're back. Uh, in the meantime, there was a Freedom of Information Act uh, request for the emails of Anthony Fauci, uh, our dictator-in-chief from the medical side of things in the federal level. Um, the actual FOA was from a couple of liberal sites, but since they were published publicly, uh, everybody got a chance to look at them. And what we're finding is that, you know, all of the conspiracy theories about masks don't work. The virus probably came from a lab. Um, social distancing doesn't work. Those were conspiracy theories. In fact, if you had said anything about the lab on Facebook, they immediately delete the post up until last week so now we have the emails february 2020 the fauci email he says masks are really for infected people to prevent them from spreading infection to people who are not infected rather than protecting uninfected people from acquiring infection 
He added that store-bought masks are not really effective in keeping out the virus, which is small enough to pass through. I, I think we've been saying that since day one. Uh, he clearly, so by February 2020, everybody was starting to talk about masks. He was about to start recommending that the entire nation wear masks. Yet privately in his emails, he's saying they don't work. And anyone who said that was considered a conspiracy theorist. Yet the guy in charge is saying that. The month prior to that, so when the, the virus started to make its appearance in, de- in December of, of 2019, hence the name COVID-19, one of the original assumptions or questions was, hey, it started in Wuhan. Wuhan has like the premier research facility for what's called gain of function. In other words, they take a, a virus that's either in nature from humans or in nature from other animals, in this case a bat, and they try and make it worse. That's what gain of function is all about. You take an existing virus and you try and make it spread faster and, and cause more damage. The theory is that by doing that, you know how to treat these kinds of things. But in this case, and as we are finding out, there's a strong possibility that, well, for sure, bat virus gain-of-function research was going on in Wuhan. And that's where it started. There were now uh, publicly acknowledged three lab assistants in the Wuhan lab who were caught some strange virus in, I want to say it was like December or November of 2019, they won't say what the virus was, but clearly it's quite possible that that is where everything started. Yet, we weren't allowed to say that. So what happened is we've now discovered through the emails that the National Institute of Health, which Fauci was in charge of since 1984, has funded the Wuhan Institute of Virology through a nonprofit called Echo Hunt. Echo Health Alliance to the tune of $600,000 over five years. So the United States was not only involved, they were paying for the research to make these bat viruses. And you know what shocks me about the 600000 is how low it is. Right. With all the dastardly things they do with our money, I would have they, they could have said they gave them $60 million, and I'd believe it. So that's the 600000 we know about. And the, and the reason they were funding it through this indirect path is because at the time, there was a moratorium on doing gain-of-function research in the United States. So what do you do? You go to your best buddy, China, to do research on weaponizing viruses. Unbelievable. And now we are finding in Fauci's emails that he acknowledged that there are characteristics of this virus that look like they were engineered. We weren't allowed to say that. And because of these emails, Facebook is now saying, okay, now you can say that on their platform. So there's a whole bunch of things that... that at risk here. So we've got on one hand, you're not allowed to make objective opinions about things based on data. And we've got the biggest social platform in the world stifling any dis- any discussion of facts and data because it doesn't fit with what the published view is. And, and it's just crazy how much censoring is going on from a history perspective. This sounds an awful lot. I, I know you're not allowed to say the N-word, uh, Nazi, but this this sounds like propaganda control that was going on in pre World War II, right? It's it's concerning. I, you, you, I think it's part of what we're living through now with um, you know media conglomeration and things like that. We're just not getting as many sources anymore. Even though we got the ability for anybody on the planet to post a video, make a make a blog entry, make a podcast. I mean, we've got tons of information, but it's it's the mainstream is coming from all one place and all one perspective. Mm-hmm. So the, the last 
excuse me, the last thing I want to talk about is an MIT study. So when you talk about trust the science, the MIT guys kind of rate kind of high on that list, I would think, right? So MIT did a study on our anti-maskers, like Ray and I and a lot of people I know, are we actually the kind that don't believe the science, that we don't trust the science? Well, MIT did a study expecting to find exactly that. Nope, they found the exact opposite, in fact. It says, and I quote, anti-maskers approach to the pandemic is grounded in more scientific rigor, not less. And what they state in this report is is exactly how I approach the problem from day one. It says that the, the people that are, tend to be anti-maskers, they trust the data and the analysis of the data. And so we all went out and, sca- and scavenged the internet looking for the raw data to draw our own conclusions using scientific principles. So the bottom line of the MIT report is, they trust the science. They don't trust the scientists. In other words, they want to make up their own mind based on the data. And and if I think back to the you know December, January, February timeframe of last year when this is going on, that's exactly what a lot of us were doing. We were downloading the data from the Ohio website, from the CDC website, and we were looking at the trends. And one of the biggest ones was if you look at all the data, now there's even a, a recent report from the University of uh, Louisville that masks – did not slow down anything with the spread of the virus. In fact, the top five cities that were the most restrictive with masks were also the top five for spread. In fact, you can see in the data, there's a correlation between mask mandates and an increase, not a decrease. And they're finally admitting that. Well, it's the whole thing. I mean, I spent a few years in the filtration business, and when I saw the this mask thing and people getting these designer masks and all that that made out of cloth i mean it, 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 it's a hoax it, it's insane it, it might stop spit i guess yeah. that's the big one but if you're close enough to somebody spitting on you you're you, probably going to knock him out anyway because he's spitting on you, you i know, mean you're not going to sit there and, and you, take that the doctor wears a surgical mask so he doesn't cough into the patient's an open right yeah and you know he doesn't when he's done with that procedure, he throws that mask away. He doesn't hang it from his rearview mirror and bring it back to work the next day. <laughs> or stick it in his car door, which is and, where mine sits. And, and then the whole thing about, you know, there's just the mainstream media is just one way. I was at a golf tournament in Columbus, Ohio this week. CBS made their employees who are working outside and driving around in golf carts wear masks. I watched it. I saw that. I, I found that interesting. Nobody else in the whole place had a mask on. But uh, CBS made their employees do that. Yeah, the sound people, the cameramen. I saw I saw some shots of that. Yeah, that is absolutely incredible. I mean, you're outside. It's probably windy. If it's not windy, there's sunshine out there, so ultraviolet light. You've got everything that kills a germ without doing a bloody thing, and they're still enforcing the mask mandate. It's all about perception. It's a religion. It's not a science. It's this bow down to the liberals. It's it's driving me nuts. Hey, so let's close out with the big announcement. So uh, we've been struggling to put together how we want to uh, organize a Restore Liberty kind of a, a movement. Um, you know, think Tea Party on steroids. We, we've got to get more people involved. Uh, I implore you, if you're listening to this podcast, send this link to five other people you know at least. We've got to get the word out. Uh, and what we've just um, closed the deal on, I guess, is we're going to have our first public event on July 8th, we haven't found the spot yet, but on that Thursday evening, July 8th, we will be having our first gathering in person to talk about these subjects. And I am pleased to announce that Josh Mandel will be there with us to give his side of, of what's going on in the, in the 
Ohio State and at the federal level as he's running for the U.S. Senate seat in Ohio. So great news, guys. We're going to finally uh, get together, see each other's face. Uh, definitely masks are not going to be required uh, unless they've got guns out in front forcing it. Um, so July 8th, put that on your calendars, write it down. We're going to be we're going to be getting out there for the first time. Hey, a reminder, if you want to hear the podcast with Josh Mandel from a couple of weeks ago, you can certainly do so. Just subscribe on Spotify, SoundCloud, iHeart, others. Search for Restore Liberty. And again, that podcast was uh, the most recent one before uh, this podcast. So just look for that. Reminder as well to sign up at info at RestoreLiberty.us. And if you want to leave feedback on this show or others, call 513-458-32. Again, 513-458-32. Thanks to our special guest, Dr. Matt Wallert. This has been the Restore Liberty Podcast with George and Ray.